Welcome to the Fikra podcast. This is the third episode, and I'm, today I have a very, very special guest with me, one of my fairly new uh, teachers, I would call. And uh, he's the chaplain of Rutgers. Um, Imam Kaiser Aslam, Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa Alhamdulillah, good to have you with us. Yeah, so this was actually um, a very <laughs> weird process to schedule because you, you take students just like all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like, how many, how many students did you say that you have? Yeah, so on an average week um, for one on one student meetings, it's anywhere from 30 to 40 students uh, that'll come and see me. So you kind of got a glimpse into what that process looks like to schedule a meeting. Yeah, yeah. So to schedule, I scheduled it. I actually asked you, I, I was like, can I, can I you know, come in for a podcast? And you were like, yeah, just go to the app or go to the scheduling. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I scheduled it and you were booked for like four weeks. I think I asked you like November 1st. This is, today's the 20th. SubhanAllah. Like, that's um, <laughs> wild. We, of course, uh, I, I'm always open for if there's an emergency or something's urgent. Yeah. Um, and a student really needs to come in. And that'll end up being like two or three students a day. But then on average, eight students a day. Um, they're typically booked about a week or two in advance. And November just tends to be a very busy month. Um, as students are under stress, they t- t- tend to make more appointments. So that's why you went through the experience that you Yes, did. yes. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't a bad experience. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. So... Today I wanted to go into uh, a bunch of topics. So how did you become a chaplain? What does that even mean? What is a chaplain? That's a very, very good question. And the first <laughs> thing in terms of... Actually, among the first things I get asked when I get introduced to a community, it's like, he's the Muslim chaplain. And people are like, dude, chaplain, isn't that a Christian thing? So like, I, I does, thought that as well. <laughs> so how does this work? And uh, it's it's it, the origin of the word does come from Christianity. And it was supposed to be that if there was a chapel in a place, like a place you could go to for prayer or like... Uh, meditation or relaxation that a chapel the caretaker of the chapel would be the chaplain so that's like etymologically where that word comes from Um, but in terms of what does it really mean it's a uh, spiritual leader in a secular space and what that really comes down to is chaplains are hired by the military they're hired by the hospital they're hired by prisons and recently they're starting to become very very prevalent on campuses and what they do is they try to help people get through a transitional moment of their life I used to work as a hospital chaplain, and I can tell you a hospital is full of transitions. You have people transitioning from health to uh, disability. You have people transitioning from, like, single life into having a child. You have people transitioning from having a mother to their mother passing. Like, there's a lot of transitions taking place, Mm -hmm. and what a chaplain is supposed to do is allow you to navigate that transition while still keeping you comfortable and trying to remind you on what are the most important aspects of your life. And, of course, from us, that becomes um, uh, on, on a campus level. As students are transitioning from uh, their old lives where their parents were in charge of everything to their now new life, and they're getting all of these new intellectual ideas and new ideas of what their life is going to entail, um, I see my role as... Um, to give them that comfortable space to negotiate all of that while still reminding them that their iman is super important. Yeah. So in, in terms of the uh, when you said the chaplain for the hospital, mm-hmm. so not everyone in a hospital is obviously Muslim. Yeah. So how did, how because you were obviously trained in the sacred sciences in terms of that. So how was that, like, was that difficult? 
Definitely. So when I, um, most chaplains, when they go through their training, they go through what's known as clinical pastoral education. And what that does, and it's typically done in a hospital setting, is it allows you to um, learn the the typical stuff like the basics of counseling, but Mm. also allows you to learn how to not make judgments about someone's theological past because of just a label. So just because someone walks in and they are a Christian, I'm not supposed to be like, well, Christians, this is what I know about Christian theology. This is what they need right in that moment. Um, But actually, the clinical pastoral education allows you to put that uh, uh, to the side. It's just good information to have, but put it to the side and actually focus on just what your interaction is telling you. Um, So a lot of my early uh, years of chaplaincy was working as a multi-faith chaplain, Mm. where I kept my Muslim identity, of course, but um, I've done prayers of benediction for um, Christian patients, or as soon as a Christian patient passes away and the family asks for like a prayer. Um, I would many times actually just translate many of our prayers into uh, into English English, um, and, and do them they're always like oh such a beautiful prayer but you also start appreciating that the role of spirituality in people's lives um tends to be pretty consistent i'm not saying that it's the same yeah but in terms of the comforting feeling the idea of um uh calling towards family uh letting allowing you to see the good in people the faults of yourself a lot of that language is so similar that you can act as a uh, authentically muslim chaplain while serving a christian community Um, Mm. or while serving a Jewish patient, or while serving a Hindu patient, and many times serving uh, patients of no faith. Mm. Um, That that what you're mainly uh, catering towards is their emotional health, um, because emotional health and spiritual health are so much more connected than most of us give it credit for. Yeah, and that that goes into like also the, um, this emotional health in general, it's knowing like, the other person's feeling at the moment, mm-hmm. right? And who was the best at that? Like the Prophet Sallallahu we, we see that he was insanely, really, really sharp at that. One of the qualities of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which uh, is Alhamdulillah talked about, but I think we don't give as much emphasis on in relating it to his prophethood, yes. is Firasa. Okay. Um, firasa was this ability, it's oftentimes translated as foresight. Okay. But it's this ability of the Prophet wasallam to look at you and know what words you needed to hear. Uh, That's an amazing amount of like emotional intelligence. Yes. Where you could see just because of the way someone's posture is or how they're making eye contact, not making eye contact, how they move their hands, yeah. um, that he could tell a lot about their personality and based on that respond to their needs a little bit better. Um, if we wanted to study that in a more common like contemporary way, um, the field of physiognomy comes to mind um, where you look at literally things like wrinkles on some one's face and you're able to make certain um, assumptions that aren't always right but you're able to make certain assumptions in terms of like oh what they might have been through I oftentimes do that many times I've read texts on this type of stuff like what every face is saying Mm. and what you use it for is not to just be like oh okay I can tell everything about you just by looking at you it's not one of those it's actually if you see certain features that people have that tend towards a characteristic and they're acting the exact opposite way that gives you insight of like maybe this newfound personality that they have isn't um, that settled in just yet because their face is saying different something different than their tongue is mm-hmm. it's like when uh, somebody tries to kind of go towards Dean and then they sit with their old type of friend crowd that yeah. that's uh, I, I've seen especially with uh, my own experiences like when you know trying to go towards Dean and then I went back with my old kind of friend crowd you know it was uh it was a different type of vibe you know it was just like like who like it was an identity crisis at that point you know yeah and like how many students do you think that come to you that don't know who they are 
Um, well, if I was to answer that in a very well, not broad in a number, way, yeah, obviously, a uh, very broad based way, all of them. Oh, um, by by the nature of kind of what the campus experience is, yeah, is people come to campus in order to expand their thoughts, to uh, grow into a vocation, mm-hmm. um, to grow into like learning about a subject or to pick up a methodology. So with that in mind, um, those that enter into the, uh, like the college experience, they are, that's the essential question they're trying to answer whether they know it or not. Even if the only question they're trying to answer is, can I get into med school? Um, part of that is actually defining how important is my career to my overall identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something they negotiate as they're here. How important are my parents to my overall identity? Because now I get to be away from them. How important is my dean now that no one's telling me to pray? Because that's what used to happen at home. So all of them are really trying to figure out who they are. And if we wanted to take that to an like uh, uh, reduce that to um, its most simplistic form, every one of us—I don't care if you're 80 years old or you're five years old—you're um, constantly asking that question as well. Or if not asking it, you're constantly answering that question for yourself: Who am I? Your actions are determining who am I, and they're constantly changing who am I. We have the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that mm-hmm. uh, the uh, or is, it's attributed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, though it's a statement of Abu. Ibn Abbas that the average believer changes the state their their hal or the state of their heart 40 times a day versus the average disbeliever doesn't change the state of the heart in 40 years mm. that, so in terms of uh, a little bit more of a a personal kind of thing when, when I because I came from a transfer school right mm-hmm. and coming from the transfer school you see that um, you know, you just go to your classes, then you come back. You go to your classes and come back. Because it's more just like you just want to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like, uh, it's kind of like you're in like a jail, basically. Because you're still, transfer schools are mostly just in your county, right? So you're still at home, still mm-hmm. staying at home. Um, and alhamdulillah, I'm still at home anyway. But uh, going there, coming back, it was kind of like a job. You know, you just got to go and you don't talk to anybody. You just go there and come mm-hmm. back. Here, Rutgers, the first kind of week was the hardest for me. I came from a school was was 100 kids in a grade, so right? Quite change. Yes, yes. So uh, 100 kids in the grade. Then at Middlesex, it was like kind of like same kind of classroom type vibes. And then after that Rutgers, it was just an entirely different monster. Um, like I was walking around, didn't know anyone. There's too many people to even get to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like I found Silveru, <laughs> right? Was the center of Islamic life at Rutgers University, right? Why don't we just say that? So that's why, you know, I found it. Uh, I found you. I didn't even know what you were doing, you know, because you, when you just come, you first, you don't even know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then I found out, you know, mashallah, like, Googled you, so <laughs> such an odd statement. Yeah, you. exactly. I know who you are because I Googled. You. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, uh, do people say that? Yeah, I've yeah. That. Actually, I well, Googled you before you got here, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's like if you if you actually if you Google you if you Google Imam Kaiser Aslam, you see there's just this one picture of you doing this with like a very short beard, uh-huh. and like you're really young, you're like younger. Yeah, right? that was taken just, like ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, and I'm wondering. I'm just like wow. People base out this, and it, that's even on the on the website. It's like that picture. I actually don't <laughs> remember. I've never uploaded that picture. Yeah, um, that picture was taken at like a conference in Texas. Uh, I want to say in like 2008 or 2009, <laughs> and it just <laughs> stuck since then. 
<coughs> so, going into more like student life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, brothers that I know, right? They, they dorm on here. Yeah. They dorm here and then they kind of just go home on the weekends, right? And, um, you know, I've actually talked with a couple of them and they say, you know, Mishu, this is like, it's so difficult. You know, there's uh, so much fitna yeah. out there and uh, it's not wrong. There, There's a lot of fitna out there. Um, I had one brother tell me like, you know, I wanted, I was going to go get some food on Halloween night. <laughs> I couldn't go, he, he couldn't <laughs> go out of his door. He couldn't leave. Like he just said, I just went back inside. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and like, whoa, so, uh, and like, so the question that they asked, right, was what are the stages of the nafs, right? Mm. And how does the nafs go from, you know, being, cause there's the highest state, right? Which is like, you are in the state of being with Allah at all times. And, uh, I think even when you're, uh, kind of like shopping, you mm. know, that's, that's like a higher state because when you're shopping, you're just doing that. You don't think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the store and mm-hmm. like the malls and stuff, right? Uh, and that, that's subhanAllah, it's crazy how um, the like the stores kind of distract you because there's dunya everywhere around you, right? Yeah. Everything that you desire in the worldly materialistic things is right around you. Mm-hmm. So you're just focused on that, right? And then the person that can fear Allah and think about Allah in there, that's a little bit of a higher state. So what would you say are the stages of these students that kind of go towards those phases, right? And how can they, how can they better themselves? uh, Like even if they're dorming, right? So, I mean, part of what you're saying in terms of stages that students get into first, there's that stage of like deer in headlights that everything is so difficult that all you want to do is either freeze um, or you want to kind of go back into your shell or the example that you gave of your friend who's like, I just had to go back to my dorm. Yeah. Like I was like, I couldn't go to, on the yeah, street. Totally, yeah. um, that, that reminds me, one of the, one of the sto- stories in the Quran captures that perfectly. This will be the story of Ashab al-Kahf, yes. right? Um, Muslim students on this, on this campus and on every campus across the country are reliving the story of, of uh, the, the use of the cave that, yes. that, that's found in the 18th chapter of the Quran. And why, of course, our stories captured in the Quran is because they're eternal. They're constantly occurring. Um, and it's going to be that that's exactly what I need to go into my cave and just hide because that's the only way that my iman is going to be preserved. Um, and I think that's what students do. As, many students will do as, as soon as they get on campus is they'll try their best that my identity can't withstand this. So I'm going to hide. And I think that's actually a healthy response to a certain extent where like the MSA is my safe space. I know we use that term on ca- liberal campuses all the time and I'm not the biggest fan of the term, but like the MSA is where I can be a Muslim with the way I remember I'm supposed to be a Muslim. Yeah. And eventually though, ideally what that leads to, just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ala right? In, in uh, describing the people of God, and we tied their hearts firm or we, we made their hearts firm. Um, that's supposed to be kind of the next stage. And I'm going the ideal way. I'll talk about the non-ideal way yeah, a little yeah. bit later. Yeah, yeah. Then it's supposed to be, okay, I found where I can negotiate my faith and grow in it um, authentically. And that's one of the things that we hope that the Center for Islamic Life provides for students yeah. is a place to negotiate their faith um, at their own pace so that they don't have to worry about either the, uh, the, the distractions of things outside. Right. But on the other end, um, 
oftentimes we're we have to wear Islam on our sleeves to such an extent because there's so many misconceptions that we kept telling telling people what Islam isn't, and we never get to figure out what Islam actually is. So that's what mm-hmm. like you find spaces to do that. But what that's supposed to eventually lead to is. Okay, now that I've established this, how do I take my Islam with me onto the street itself, mm-hmm. onto the college campus, in my classes, eventually when I get to work, eventually when I get to a community, eventually when I'm in charge of raising a family? Um, that's like the, the very, that's like the highest stage that you're eventually supposed to get to. Um, I would say college students are constantly going back and forth between the two. Like, even the ideal college yes, students yes. that are constantly kind of negotiating my Muslim space versus when I get out into my non-Muslim space. What I'll say, one measure that I have of students is if they are able to be consistent in those two, that's a mature student. If they have a complete dichotomous or a, I don't want to call it hypocritical because I, I don't want to go as far as to call uh, say that they're practicing but hypocrisy. students do feel hypocritical. That needs to be addressed. Those spaces that we create should give us the uh, the vaccination of how to deal with the diseases that are outside, not to just be a shelter in which there's no disease. So it's almost like this like triaging center where you come in and like, oh, we'll get you inoculated. And I'm using a lot of like medical terms, but yeah. we'll, we'll get you like we'll give you the intellectual capital that you need so that when some when a philosophy class tells you something or when a partying lifestyle starts calling to you, you're like, you know what? No, I actually have studied that already. And I know that it's not. Not good for me. Yeah. What I have and what I was have always trying to be, what I've been trying to preserve, will actually give me way more happiness in this life and in the next life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where they go to. And if we're talking about stages. Um, I would say, again, a book on purification of the heart will tell you that you have three basic selves. It's going to be like uh, nafs al-amara, that commanding self, um, or, or nafs al-lawama. Uh, these two are like the appetitive self and the commanding self. One that keeps saying, like, eat more, uh, don't lower your gaze, let your appetites just go. The appetites of the eyes, the appetites of, of uh, like, the ego, all of those start coming out. And there's naf- the other type of nafs, which is constantly telling you just be controlling, Limit everything, limiting everything. Um, you have to kind of learn to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of each one. And then oftentimes we talk about the third one being the highest, nafsul mutma'inna. But actually a more healthy approach is each one just needs to know its place. Even nafsul mutma'inna, the soul that's at rest. Mm-hmm. Nafsul mutma'inna is awesome in the hereafter. Because yeah. in the hereafter, you should definitely be nafsul mutma'inna. But in this life, that's the one that's going to tell you not to do anything. Like everything is chill, man. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> That would be a fast track to nafsul mutma'inna that many college students unfortunately fall into. Yeah. That's actually not the answer either. It's yeah. to put nafsul lawama in its place, nafsul amara in its place, and at times recognize where nafsul mutma'inna um, needs to be as well. In your salah, that's supposed to be nafsul mutma'inna. Yeah. When you're talking about how to build your body up, mm. utilize nafsul lawama a little bit. Mm. Utilize nafsul amara a little bit. They each have their spaces, and the more complex our language can be around it, the easier it's going to be to actually like um, uh, control and direct these parts of our personalities. Allah gave us all of them for a reason. Um, an example we use in our study circle class of uh, we have a class every Wednesday night in which we talk about diseases of the heart, oh. and we'll talk about um, uh, it's from five to seven p.m. and we'll talk about diseases of the heart and like um, like back almost like our physical bodies are a metaphor for our spiritual bodies as well. In our physical bodies right now, you and I both have about twenty thousand tuberculosis bacterium in our systems. <laughs> I, and when you think tuberculosis, that's a scary disease. That's yeah. stuff where you like, cough up blood. Mm-hmm. That's true. But you and I have about 20,000 of them. 
in a normal human being, that's how many there are. Mm-hmm. But as someone who is sick, it's like 2 million to 3 million. Mm. Same thing in terms of like our ourselves. You're supposed to have an appetite. But if you let that appetite go way too far, it'll destroy your spiritual. Just like the diseases in our body will destroy us physically. All we need to do is continue to maintain them in that perfect ecosystem. Um. So, speaking of classes that uh, Silru does offer, um, I think you said that there's the um, the history his, history of Islam class. So, uh, going into a little bit more of the history, right? We can we can push that to the side a little later. But you also mentioned how staying fit, right? Nafs al lawama, right? So, for, say for example, right. There's a, a brother, right, trying to get big, bulk up for the, sure. right, just for, let's just say for the sake of Allah, right? Uh, it, it's for I'm, his... I'm going to assume that this brother is taking the hadith into account that the strong yes, is more beneficial yes, yes. than the weak. Yes, yes, yes. Al-mu'min quwa, that's, that's uh-huh. his motto, yeah. you know? Um, and he's also uh, following that, you know, Imam Malik used to eat meat every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so bulking up. Uh, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, practicing brother. How... Can one uh, not go overboard, right? Because there's there's situations where you'll have these uh, you'll have very practicing brothers. They'll fall so far into this cycle of doing things in the dunya that they'll lose their uh, nafs side. How can one have that still on on track, right? And then one personal thing that I've done is I've used like uh, I've just having a connection with the masjid. That's one thing that I've done. But, like, what are other kind of techniques to, like, keep sane in your spiritual self? Definitely. And that's a, that's a very good example of an action that many of us find is, like, um, oh, it's a good action. But even a good action taken to an extreme can lead to an extremely destructive um, yes. result for your soul. Um, and I would say a couple of things are to be watched out for. One is, we like, all actions are based on intentions. We need to constantly be reflecting on, like, hey, has my intent changed? And... I have to kind of push back on the workout culture that we currently have. Like, I'm happy that people are trying to be more healthy, but like health is now a replacement for social status. Like, um, depending on how much wealth you have determines what gym you go to, Mm. not which one fits your schedule. Most it's, it's like, there's a tiered system. Yeah. Like if you go to the campus gym, eh, and even on campus, which gym you go to determines yeah. that. If you go to like a Planet Fitness, you're on the low end. Yeah. If you go to like an LA, you're in like the middle end. Yeah. If you go to like a what are those crazy ones like a Life or e- whatever those Equinox. Subhanallah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, tells <laughs> you which one I'm on. <laughs> um, but it's turned into a status symbol, and we have to kind of ask ourselves that of like what uh, constantly remind ourselves what am I doing this for? Is it because like, there's good aspects to working out. Like, the healthier I am, the more focus I'm going to have in my studies. The more focus I'm, the more I'm going to be able to serve my family, mm. right? These are great reasons. The more I'm going to be work for, being able to work for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it gives me more energy when I listen to Quran. It gives me more energy when I read books. Awesome. That Those should be your goals. Um, but then I have to push back a little bit. What does uh, having a giant bicep have to do with uh, uh, with any of those goals, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes it's like form has to equal function. And oftentimes we're we're falling into what's uh, one of the diseases of the heart is baghi. You let something that's good justify something that's bad. Mm. Um, 
And the way that uh, how to control yourself, one is again, for your own personal gain, try to read address your intentions of like, okay, is what I'm doing actually going to accomplish the intention that I wanted it to? And if it's not, uh, if you have the discipline enough, you make the change. If not, the second aspect of this comes in where company is huge. Where, uh, we need to have people around us who can keep us in check. The hadith of the Prophet is Al-Mu'min Mir'atul Mu'min. That a believer is a mirror for a believer. And we need to have people in our lives who are honest mirrors. And not like yes men, people who like, as anything you say, like, that's awesome, mashallah, you're just great. Now, people who are like, go honest and be like, dude, you look bad. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, your intention, if uh, you tell them your intention or you have this honest conversation, one of the words for friend in the Quran is batin. It's someone you can, who, which comes from batan. Mm-hmm. It's someone you, who you can literally pour your stomach out to and they won't make fun of it. They'll just look at it and be like, I know, I know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. You're eating too much of this. This is too much. You need to decrease this. You need to increase this a little bit. So um, interact with, get good company who's going to hold you to account. For you, I think Majid is the perfect place to oftentimes find them because you will find those people in the trajectory that um, uh, uh, that they would be in. So if if you want people who are uh, connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, go to the place in which they, they put their foreheads to the floor in order to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you want these people to be ones who are doing humanitarian work, then go volunteer and find them there. But find people in your life who will hold you to account, who you can uh, reflect on your intention with, That'll be kind of step um, the the second course that you have uh, to deal with, and then I would say um, on an, on another level of um, test if your hypothesis is working because if mm-hmm. it's supposed to be that as I'm getting stronger, that I'm more available for my family. Mm-hmm. As I'm getting stronger, my grade should be going up. As I'm getting stronger, my deen, my concentration and prayer should be going up. Mm-hmm. Um, start testing it. Is that actually what's happening, or did I stamp a good intention? on just trying to fulfill the inside goal, which is actually like, oh, I want my body to look good for other people. Mm. And if that's the actual goal, it's not wrong to necessarily have that goal, but be honest with yourself. If that's it, um, how much energy should that take versus how much energy should some of your higher goals in your life be taking? Yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, intentions as well, the uh, intentions are, I actually <laughs> recently just kind of figured out that you have to renew them on like a daily basis and sometimes even on like an hourly basis. While you're doing the action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause, um, like, like I've told you like, uh, like reciting and everything. So, um, I used to be like, I would say like, you could say like the, the Instagram reciter. Right. Uh, and, and you, you kind of fall into like wanting the likes and wanting the views and everything and then it it um i said oh i'm doing for the benefit you know um and like i put these out there just to the benefit people you know i'm not like you know exposing anything like i'm just saying that Mm -hmm. it happened and it happens to anyone so instagram was uh was an outlet Right. And in you and, and even for the fitness people, they, you know, they say, uh, subhanAllah, and then they'll have this big biceps pic, you know, and like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then like at the end of the day, like, um, you know, the, the Instagram kind of shut me down in terms of, uh, like I wanted to do my hifas more and more. Like, like for those that have done hifas or anyone that kind of like reads the 29th juz uh, a lot, they, they'll know that Surah Qalam doesn't take eight weeks to memorize. No, not, not at all. Exactly. Like, yeah. Five days. Uh, yeah. And, and I just 
yeah, I, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It, it. Like, I just kept pushing it off. And I was like, I was doing the reciting for the Instagram. And at the end, that, that didn't benefit me at all. So <laughs> I talked to my teacher and he was like, okay, there's like either there's two things. Okay. You have to renew your intentions or <laughs> there's like some really strong ayin on you. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, Sheikh, I, I think with Instagram, both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I told him, I was like, you know, yeah, Sheikh, I, you know, I have this Instagram where I recite. And he's like, all right, delete it. And then he made me delete it on the spot. Yeah. And that was so, it was, it was the, it was a hard to do. Because I, I built myself like that, you know? It was hard to do at that time. Uh, and it was like a year ago or something. And I, it was hard to do. And then I told him, uh, okay, this is going to be hard. And he's like, I don't care, do it. And then it was the it was like a hard pill to swallow, but it, it solved, alhamdulillah, it helped me realize that intentions are the biggest thing, especially especially with uh, when it comes to deen, yeah. right? If you do anything like for you can do like yeah become an engineer right for your for your own self right do that when anything in the terms of deen or anything for Allah do that for Allah otherwise you're gonna fall hard and especially I remember um, uh, advice that's that's super important is your best deeds um, should be reserved for the ones that only you and Allah know what I mean by that is one of the things we should really take to heart is uh, one of the ways that the Day of Judgment is described is Yawm Sarair. It's the day in which things will be revealed. Mm. And if all of the good in your life has already been revealed, what's there to reveal on the Day of Judgment? The bad. The bad. And this gets into the intentions talk of, um, alhamdulillah, I'm actually really glad that we have a culture in which people like compete on things like working on their adhan, on mm-hmm. their recitation. Alhamdulillah, that's, that's good. You're supposed to compete <laughs> yeah. in what's good. But the slight pushback I would give to it is save your best recitation. You know, like that, that super awesome recitation yeah, yeah. for when you're reciting alone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's for Allah. Yeah. Your recitation in front of people, make it don't make it bad. I mean, like, don't <laughs> stick to the rules yeah, yeah, of the tweet yeah, yeah. and like yeah, recite yeah. well. Yeah. But like that shouldn't be the one in front of people. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen this on a on a smaller case where like people would do the adhan and like I hear them do the adhan mm-hmm. at Juma, mm-hmm. and I'm like, mashallah, that is a mashallah adhan, right? And then the same person you tell them to like do the adhan when there's only like two or three people praying, and suddenly like the adhan. Is like a, it's still a mashallah, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not a mashallah, tabarakallah. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we, should all, <laughs> we should always be doing a mashallah, tabarakallah. Yeah, exactly. But like you could tell that the zeal was gone, and not yes. to judge that person's attention. Obviously. Maybe they were just tired, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we see this consistently enough, and it's like subhanallah, we need to we need to stop being performative about our ibadah. At the end of the day, if we're doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it would it would actually increase in its uh, intensity when you're alone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. Um, the first, so I was, you know, the first, uh, what's it called? The first khutbah that I gave, um, it was just like maybe two or three people. Or like, you know, it was like a musalla, right? So it was just like a couple people. Um, and then, you know, me at that time, right, it was like, you know, what is what's going on, <laughs> you know, because uh, you always see these khatibs with huge crowds, and you, you watch, you know, Sheikh Omar Suleiman, and Mufti Mank, and, and you just kind of build, like, yourself to that level, uh, and, like, you kind of go to, like, the airhead state, where you're just, like, full of yourself, right, and then you're just like, oh, okay, but, um, you know, I had to 
quickly fix myself because I and alhamdulillah like, I realized that you know it's not gonna benefit you at that time like to be like oh I'm not even gonna do it anymore like first of all what <laughs> you prepared already and it was my first one alhamdulillah it, w- it was good though because I think like I was already so nervous and shaking and stuff because when you are like talking about like Allah right and you're talking about the Prophet Sallallahu and you're like giving a hadith and uh, Quran ayat and you have to be on top of your mind game like you can't make a mistake then um, you know and subhanAllah one khutbah I gave um, what's it called I it was a slip of the tongue or something but I said you know Ali uh, the nephew of the prophet and, and then and then I didn't catch myself in the recording I caught myself and it was my aunt who caught me and she was just like yo <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, subhanAllah, you just learn from those mistakes. Yeah. You know? And uh, learning from mistakes, right? We go into um, <laughs> learning from mistakes. First, we'll talk about the college students. But then learning from mistakes, we talk about your uh, history class. Right? And you have, uh, you have a history class. Yeah. So um, every semester, I teach two or three courses. So Tuesday nights and two on Wednesday nights. And on Wednesday nights, uh, what we do every seventh semester, so every three and a half years, is we go through a... Uh, so it's actually a four-year curriculum. So wow. if uh, the average college student that gets comes through Rutgers will have gone through the entire Islamic literacy curriculum every single wow. year. Except every for single, transfer students. Uh, <laughs> it's open to everyone. So the transfer students, they can just stay a little bit longer. <laughs> or... <laughs> <laughs> or they're great welcome advice. here while they're even before they're students. <laughs> great, yeah. um, but uh, <laughs> uh, we go through Muslim history and we start with literally the death of the Prophet wasallam, And we go all the way down to about World War One, And we try to get a holistic understanding. Again, it's more of a survey class of what was going on in the Muslim world throughout the, these 1350 years or so. Um, and it's eye-opening for students for a number of reasons, but we mentioned like mistakes. One of the things I noticed from students is there's this inbuilt idea that like the past was awesome and Muslims are terrible now. Mm. And as much as I can probably provide supporting evidences to that, um, what they don't realize is Muslims from the time of the Prophet, anyone who's even studied Sirah will tell you that there were challenges in the Sirah. There were challenges after the Prophet passed away. Yeah. There were challenges when in the first Umayyads, the rulers were for lack, like they were terrible. There was a lot of issues that went on. There's no such thing as like Islam had a golden age for a long time, and then now we're in the dark ages. No, we've been through some super dark times, and I would argue we've been through darker times than we're in right now. Yes. Um, and the reason that's important to recognize and to paint that picture in our heads is so that we can understand. You know, Subhanallah, it could be that we're in a golden age. Yeah. Because the people of the golden ages in the past that we've labeled, no one knew they were in a golden age. That was declared 200, 300 years after the fact. Yeah. Um, so that uh, we can start appreciating the situation that we have and appreciating the difficulties that they, p- the people of the past had and some of their awesome moments, but also some amazing things that are happening right now. If we have this romanticized notion of what happened in the past, all it turns into is a self-defeating attitude. We're never going to be like them. Uh, we're, we're going to constantly be like less than them. When we have hadith of the Prophet that say something along the lines of like, my ummah is like the rain. 
you can't tell whether the baraka was in the beginning or the best of it was in the beginning or the best of it was at the end. Yeah. We, the, the, we have hadith like that. And we also have hadith that say that the first generation, no one is going to be as good as the first generation, yeah. right? So we also have that understanding that, that they were amazing and we'll get trial after trial after trial. But we also have hadith of the Prophet wasallam that say along the lines of like, this ummah will be tried and tested again and again and again. And the analogy that's given is like um, when you cut a plant, if you're like raising a bonsai tree or something, like those little tiny yes, coal trees, yes, you keep cutting it, you keep cutting yeah, yeah. it, you keep cutting it um, until the end result is better than anything that came before. Yeah. We have some amazing narrations about how, how much accomplishments the ummah will have. And we have the other ones, which are warnings. But we have to have a measured response. And I think that's what studying Muslim history really gets you, is that measured response to appreciate the past, not glorify it realistically appreciate it so that you can appreciate the present moment that you're in. That's one side. And on the other side, um, having a romantic uh, idea of what the past is, is super dangerous, especially when you get to college, because mm. you'll eventually take a class on history. Yeah. And someone will tell you, like, did you know that Muslims, uh, that three Muslim civilizations were at war with each other? So one example is the Mamluks and then the Ottomans, right? They were both rolling, rolling at the same time. They were fought for 200 years. Mm. Literally 100 and something years after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, even if we go just a couple of years after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you have wars going on in which Sahaba, like Ali radiyatala anhu, is on the opposite side of a battlefield than Aisha radiyatala anha. Yeah. The wife of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yeah. They're on opposite sides of a battlefield. Where is this Islam golden age you're talking about? Mm. If we don't paint a realistic picture, our picture is going to be very easy to poke holes through. That's why if we paint a realistic one and understand those scenarios, I'm like, no, subhanAllah, that did happen, but we can still appreciate some of the beauty that came out with it. Um, there were challenges, but look where, how we've inherited this tradition from them. Um, then we're able to answer those questions with a little bit more nuance, and it doesn't have to be a, a crisis of faith uh, as soon as someone tells us what are true facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, some other uh, in terms of uh, from the from that kind of time period, right? We see that um, Uthman uh, mm-hmm. he had to appoint two uh, kind of like higher higher kind of yeah. state positions, of he, uh, members of his family, mm-hmm. right? And then a lot of people criticize him for that. What would you say on that? People criticize him and called him out for nepotism. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, what needs to be really be recognized is think about the state of the ummah. When you go from Abu Bakr, uh, the Prophet ﷺ, to Abu Bakr mm-hmm. um, there was already this. Oh, there's a leader after the Prophet ﷺ. Abu Bakr who specifically also didn't uh, didn't appoint judges. Mm-hmm. He stepped away from religious life and was more of a political ruler. Mm-hmm. The ummah is expanding under Umar, and that's only lasts for two years. Mm-hmm. And then Umar radiyallahu anhu, much longer reign, about ten years. He, do you have the Ummah, the the lands that the Muslims control goes from the Arabian Peninsula to all the way east to India mm-hmm. and all the way west to Morocco. Yep. That is a very large span of land, yeah. and there there is no system in place in terms of how are you going to appoint rulers, how are you going to appoint. Um, uh, uh, deal with all of the new infrastructure and bureaucracy that took place. And Umar mm-hmm. radiyallahu anhu, what he ends up doing is he hires the, the people from the Byzantine Empire 
Empire and the people from the Sasanian Empire. As soon as the uh, the lands came to him, he's like, all the tax collectors, you're going to stay the same. And Farsi actually became the language of taxes mm. because he just hired the same uh, uh, machinery, in machinery he, yeah, he, yeah. He, meaning people, the same bureaucracy, mm. to run things how they were. Under Uthman anhu. He starts taking a little bit more control. Again, 10 years have passed, and when Uthman Radizalan, who takes over, he starts taking control of, like, maybe we should start um, setting up some of our own systems. If you're setting up your own systems, who are you going to appoint is your own people. Yeah. Right? So this is a lot of where the mentality comes from. Criticism can be made. Terms like, was that the best decision? Was it not? But paint the realistic scenario. You're going from... the a tribal society to being an empire yeah. that's going to have a lot of growing pains. Yeah. And people are establishing methodologies. And like under Umar uh, who there was no currency either. Yeah. They, they would use the, the dinar and the dirham from the Byzantines and the Persians. Yeah. They, they just imported that. You finally get the idea of like, maybe we should mint our own currency. Maybe we need our own tax collectors. Maybe we need our own system of uh, sending mail across from one part of the ummah to the next. Because we're starting to talk about like a global society. And Uthman al-Zalan, who is taxed with that, um, and he puts who he thinks is going to be best, who is he going to trust? You're talking about a society that was, has been tribal for thousands of years. Who are you going to trust? People of your tribe. Mm-hmm. So he, he puts them kind of in into place. And again, it could it be criticized? Maybe, but what uh, what other systems do people have to rely on at that point? There's no such thing as a meritocracy mm-hmm. where people have like a, oh, you have to hire me because I have a bachelor's in accounting or something. <laughs> 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 we're, we're, talk, we're talking 640, 650 yeah. um, uh, common era. Like none of this exists. The first university isn't out yet. Mm-hmm. So none of this really takes place. And who do you, what do you rely on? You rely on family. And yes. you relied on family. Yes. And that led to a lot of problems where people are like, oh, look, it's your family who you keep putting in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I'm not going to go over the whole history yeah. lesson right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's criticism. He fixes it. And then eventually um, the criticism gets stronger of like, well, no, this is why we should have had someone else two regimes ago actually been the, the uh, ruler instead of you. Hmm. That starts uh, taking forward and eventually leads to Uthman um, Radhi whose death, his martyrdom. Hmm. Um, and uh, then that leads to a divide within the ummah where people will, uh, will where uh, a very powerful governor, Mawiyah, a cousin of Uthman Radhi Talan, who hmm. starts saying that, uh, and this is also a place that's extremely economically rich because that hmm. was, it became a military center, saying that until you figure out who killed my cousin or until you figure out who killed our, our Khalifa, I won't uh, give up my power or give up my seat mm. and you have others who have the opinion that no um, the idea of having an amir like the, a, a khalifa in charge of the ummah is much more important order is more important and they want to appoint Ali anhu. and of course that leads into a major kind of uh, um, problem the first major fitna that takes place within our ummah um, that uh, is, is, uh, is, is found then but again the more we understand it and the more we have the ability to talk about it with some level of um, realism uh, the the better it's going to be for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost want us to think of like, we talk about, oh, that masjid versus this masjid. <laughs> this is a part of our history. Yeah. There have been different opinions from the very beginning. Exactly. And uh, and at that point, uh, right after the martyrdom of uh, Uthman Radhi Lawan, the, um, you know, everybody's like, oh, like, that's when, 
you know, Sunnis and Shias became. And then, like, you know, we know we're Sunni, but then, like, the Shias, you know, what, what are they? Like, what do they do? Oh, we know what they do, this, this, this. Uh, it's important to learn your history to realize that. Like, what was the original kind of thing? And obviously, we're not going to go into, like, the differences yeah. between the two. And so, that's actually <laughs> not when the Sunni and the Shia community separate. Exactly. That's what everybody thinks. Yeah. Everyone kind of has that mis- uh, that conception. Um, Sunnis and Shias alike. That, like, yeah. it, it was that cause. Yes. Um, but there's there's a lot of narratives uh, to be had in terms of like, well, when Abu Bakr was elected, there was a part, a group of people, just like I want us to think about this, right after an election, people still remember the income, the, the person who didn't get elected, right? Yeah. But how many of you can, how many people can even name who uh, George, well, Muslims can name this because Bush <laughs> war was a huge thing, but like yeah. who Bush won, who is the other guy? Normally you're like, uh, I, don't know. I, I don't know who the other guy was. You just yeah. remember who won, right? Yeah, yeah. But the closer you are to it, they remember it. Yes. That same kind of phenomenon. There were others who were in the running to be to be the Khalifa. And those that were closer in that moment kept sticking to it. It should have been them. It should have been them. It should have been them. So you can say it's there, but the actual communities don't separate each from each other until a couple of generations later. Um, when it really comes down to uh, the those that had political power were afraid of those that had religious power. Mm. Because you had the grandchildren of the Prophet wasallam. that'll be that event. Um, when Hassan and Hussein um, were, were martyred, um, that, that will be one of that, that huge dividing um, uh, moment, even though that will not be a theologically dividing moment, but that'll be a dividing moment. Because you'll have a very, um, call it for what it is, uh, uh, in a khalifa with very low self-esteem, going mm-hmm. that, oh, people are listening to the, the family of the Prophet more than they're listening to me. Yeah. Um, deciding that we need to actually corner them, we need to make sure that they become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But subhanAllah, in doing so, um, he gave them extreme relevance. And, yeah. Um, and uh, exactly. it, it caused the biggest, one, one of the biggest tragedies that someone has ever seen. Yes. Um, so, and that will be under, like, much later on. So this will be Mawiyah uh, uh, takes over as Khilafah later um, uh, uh, from, from Syria and then his children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Yazid, his ch- child, Walid, his child, they'll constantly have their lineage kind of going on, but mm-hmm. it'll be a moment. This won't be the only time that happens in Muslim history, but that the uh, 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 p- religious political authority tries to become the religious authority. Mm-hmm. Any time in history that has taken place, um, the streets rebel in terms mm-hmm. of the authority of Islam is not typically given to the ruler. It's yeah. given to the people. And yeah. this is the first major example of that we'll hear. It'll happen again with Al-Mansur, um, with the Mihna, in which he tries to con- tell everyone, this is the Abbasid ruler, tries mm-hmm. to tell everyone that the uh, they he can declare that the Qur'an has been created. And he yeah. tries to enforce this on the people. Yes. And the people, I'm oversimplifying it, but the people reject. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal comes out on top, even after being imprisoned for a while. Um, but it was understood that if the palace ever tries to rule our religion, the people will revolt. Yes. That's the, that's the closest thing to an inquisition we've ever gotten. Yes. And all of the, and not even uh, just uh, Imam Ahmed, all of the uh, Imams had, and that's just a whole different conversation about their problems. <laughs> so we can't even say that, oh, golden age, golden age. Like, it, there's so many things that happen that we don't know about, you know, unless we learn this. I, so I, My typical uh, <laughs> conversation about Muslim history is, um, the average Muslim has an understanding of, and this is like the practicing Muslims, <laughs> I, I have thing. an understanding of Sirah. And alhamdulillah, yeah. I'm really glad that they do. Yeah, like They go through Sunday <laughs> school or something, so they have an understanding, a relative understanding yeah. of Sirah. They can tell me what's the difference between Makkah and 
and Medini. Uh-huh. Um, they can tell me a little bit about like the four major battles. Um, so they can tell me this type of stuff. But um, when I and then they'll tell me something along the lines of I know about Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. I don't know what happened in each, any of their reigns, but I know yeah. that those were the first four Khalifas. I'm yeah. like, okay, cool. And then I, if I keep pressing them, they'll yeah. say something along the lines of like, oh, and Muslims had a golden age in Spain. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, what about in between? When yeah. where did Spain come to the equation? I have <laughs> no idea. Uh-huh. How come Muslims don't exist in Spain anymore? Mm-hmm. Really. No idea. I, I can even ask the basic question of like, why is Indonesia the biggest Muslim country on earth? Yeah. And they're like, hmm. <laughs> so like our, our knowledge of Islamic history Definitely. is Sira. And the names of the the, uh, the Khalifas, the Khulafa mm-hmm. Rashidin, the, the four Khalifas, and even that term is debated in terms of who is counted in it. In certain traditions, there's five of them. In other traditions, there's two of them. In other traditions, the most common one is that there's actually four of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I ask a Shia Muslim, they can usually tell me a little bit more because they yeah. know the names of the 12 Imams yeah. and a slight vignette of kind of what all of them, uh, all of their lives were like. Yeah. Um, but that, again, adds maybe 140 more years <laughs> to yeah. get up until 920. Exactly. Um, when uh, Muhammad al-Mahdi goes into his ghaibah. But uh-huh. again, we get into if I ask those same questions. Muslims in Spain, they'll tell me that thing. The golden age. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> um, they're not able to give me any of that. Yeah. What... Teaching Muslim history is supposed to do is again. We should we should we're inheriting a vast tradition of yeah. so much diversity, and the more we can appreciate its diversity, the more we'll be able to work with the diversity that we're inheriting, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. And um, just like finally, like why should we learn the past to prevent it from happening again? Mm-hmm. Right? Is because that's a big question. Learning history. And then how can I, as an individual, internalize these things that happened and then kind of like, like what does even internalizing it mean? Right? So um, I'm going to answer this in two ways. One is that common expression. I don't even know where it comes from, but like those that uh, don't learn the past are doomed to repeat it. Mm. So that's definitely true. Like we should learn from some of the arguments that our predecessors have had, some of the painful growth that they had to go through. They went through that growth so mm. that we could inherit from it. Just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah teaches us the history of humanity, there were civilizations that Allah gives us the lessons for. That like, no, they the humanity painfully learned these and the lessons are reserved in the Quran. Same thing in terms of in our ummah ourselves. We've learned some very painful lessons. Don't mm. forget them. So, yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to continuously kind of go through them over and over and over again. That's one side. But then the other side is also, um, I'm going to quote Malcolm X here um, from his autobiography. That... Uh, um, those that don't learn their history, yes, they're doomed to repeat it. But the worst situation is for the one who lets their enemy teach their children their history. Mm. And I don't mean to be like conspiratorial or say yeah. like uh, there's enemies teaching us no, the, the exactly. tradition. But um, uh, Muslim history that a lot of students are getting is from a very oriental or very conquest. Like these are the people that we conquered. Exactly. Uh, like uh, a colonialist mindset. Yeah. And when that happens, Muslims' idea of what Islam is isn't actually an authentic idea of Islam. Yes. It's been completely warped by those that conquered the Muslims. So do you want the people that you conquered, do you want their children to have the highest understanding of what their deen teaches or the best thing that their civilization had to offer? And the answer to that is usually no. You have this caricature. 
mm. of like Muslims were these barbaric people. Muslims were these like simple people. Muslims were these, uh, and oftentimes when we want to uh, uh, describe another person, we simplify them. Mm. And unfortunately, Muslims have uh, young Muslims who don't study their history with any level of rigor um, have a very simplistic idea of what Muslims are. Like it's it's black and white all the time. What that leads to is you have the uh, a weak presentation of your ancestry. Yeah. And that's like the, the one small little uh, Islam unit. You're yeah. like, oh, okay, uh, class, today the Islam empire. <laughs> today is, today's topic is Islam. <laughs> like, and then like you get like 400 kids just learning like in one class like the entire Islamic history. <laughs> like That's crazy. And <laughs> I, I have to kind of go into it. If, our, <laughs> if someone can exhaust your knowledge of Islamic history in two paragraphs, <laughs> like... Just think about, like, what am I inheriting? Yes. It's, it's, it's almost like if I asked the question of, like, um, if someone's getting a degree in, let's say, biology, mm. and I'm like, okay, um, write down what you know, what you've learned in, in, in that degree. It should be pretty massive. Just yeah. the list of classes you take should take more than a page. Yeah. But unfortunately for some of us, like, our entire understanding of our uh, history can be just this. Um, and the common comparisons that we should make is I think that Muslims in America should have a very solid understanding of American history. Yes. They, they should, and that grows over time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're very... I remember when I was in, like, third grade, I learned about Paul Revere. <laughs> um, like, Paul Revere, like, uh, he, he rode his horse to say, the British are coming, yeah. the British are coming. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was like... The, it's like a mythology almost, right? Yeah. You learn a little bit later on, like, I think if you was history, I was like, Paul Revere wasn't even important. He didn't even probably make the ride. He had his servant do it for him. Exactly. <laughs> right? He's not that major of a figure. Bigger. Yeah. Um, you start learning that as you get older and older. And eventually, as when you're super old, like you have all of these different uh, sources that you've learned history from. That should be how we are for uh, our Muslim history as well. I agree that some of these, like the romantic stories that we have, they should be taught like that to children. Yes. And as we get older, just like Paul Revere's like moment in history is like, dude, that wasn't actually what you learned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Let's tell you now the real version. Or maybe not the real version, but the more complex version. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Islamic history. That's how we should learn it. But unfortunately, most of us, when we learn Islam, we're in about sixth grade or seventh grade. Yeah. And by the time we get older, we never, like, refine it. And yes. it would be the example of, like, think about what you, the science you learned in sixth grade. I remember the science I learned in sixth grade was, like, there's three, there's three styles of matter, Right, yeah. no, um, and it's much more complex than that. Or like, think about economics when you learned it in like third or fourth grade. Yeah. For my understanding of economics was, uh, my parents go to a box, a metal box that gives them money, and that's how where money comes from. Exactly. Yeah. If you tried to function in life with that level of understanding of economics, you exactly. would fail miserably. Yeah. But we're expected to. The last time we learned about dua was in sixth grade and we're expected to use that understanding for the rest of our lives the last time we learned about qadr predestination was that long ago yeah. last time we learned about nabuwa the purpose of nabuwa of prophethood now was in sixth grade well no the even the purpose of prophethood and how you interact with it changes over time and you need to raise your vocabulary or else it's going to fall behind it's true yes yeah, so this was uh, an amazing uh, conversation slash uh, podcast, and we went into so many different types of things. Uh, we definitely segued well, I would yeah. say. We didn't we didn't kind of go everywhere, uh, but alhamdulillah. So you teach uh, the history classes on Wednesdays. 
uh, five to seven at Silbru on uh, College Ave. Seven, seven to eight is the uh, is the study circle. Five to seven is diseases of the heart, and Tuesday nights uh, okay, okay. from uh, seven to eight is uh, spirituality night. Okay, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday is just jam packed. Uh, yeah, and, and anybody can just come and ask you. Just, yeah, pop in and ask, yeah. and uh, it is free. Of course it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting anybody into like a, okay, in mom case, there's going to be at the door five dollars, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, so, um, but yeah, uh, I would personally like to thank you on the record, I guess, <laughs> so Jazakallah Khair for uh, mom case for taking the time out, and uh, the scheduling was very easy, it, was, it wasn't that hard, actually, you know, just clicking a button, and then, you know, sometimes you don't even realize who's there, and then you're like, oh, today, okay, <laughs> You know, so, but JazakAllah for everything. Um, and this was, uh, I would say, an amazing conversation we had. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so uh, thank you for tuning into the po- Fikra podcast. And uh, inshallah, we're going to have an episode on next week uh, as well. And this won't be on YouTube uh, just due to different technical difficulties for the video. But uh, inshallah, the audio will be up on SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as probably YouTube. Uh, just not the video aspect. Jazakallah khair for tuning in. Uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.